13th floor. The 13th floor. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the 13th floor where the furniture isn't always the best, but the. <laughs> are amazing wow yeah that took me totally by surprise uh you have it man how you doing coach k in the building what's going on i'm good man how you doing i'm delightfully uh tickled by that smile man like you just look like a a happy baby just then you said you want to be the smile man so i did what you wanted me to do you you, man you can't win on here man you don't smile (laughs) you hear about it you smile you hear about it i have to take this man i'm gonna revoke your access next week Oh man, don't do me like that. Don't do me like that. Phase on, man. We miss you, bro. What's going on? Hi, I'm happy to be back. Uh, as always, whenever I'm on here, I enjoy myself. I enjoy you guys. Looking forward to this wonderful conversation today. Awesome. And we got BJ back on, two weeks strong. What's going on, sir? Yes, sir. It's a beautiful day in the neighborhood. Let's go, baby. Let's go, man. Hey, He's t- hey you, you gonna go for a record? <laughs> You need, you need one more week. You might have a record. I think I need yeah, one more week. <laughs> May not happen next week, so it might start all over. <laughs> and a very special introduction introduction to our special guest, Miss Trinice McNally. How are you today? I'm good. I'm good. I'm tired, but I'm good. You're not tired, man. We just getting started here. We okay. just I'm excited to be with y'all. Y'all y'all look a little funny, so this should go great. I don't know to take that as a comment. Look, look a little funny. Hold on. <laughs> what is it with the women that we bring on the 13th floor? Somebody with the shots and the shit. The show's looking funny so far. Not like as in the way you. Oh, the show's looking funny. Okay. <laughs> yeah, what is wrong with you? Oh, oh, oh. All I heard was y'all look funny. Listen, listen, I, look funny. <laughs> I was good. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, y'all look funny. Like, I'm watching the dynamics happening, you know. Yeah, you're on UK. But yes, Ms. Trinice McNally, the founding director of Multicultural Affairs for UDC, University of District Columbia, all new Center for Diversity, Inclusion, and Multicultural Affairs. And she is a proud graduate from Bethune-Cookman University. University now, right? For a while now. Oh, okay. Yeah. Bethune-Cookman University. Absolutely. Welcome to the show. Welcome to the show. We're here to talk about HBCUs, man. But Hold before- on, man. What's that, man? Wildcats? Yes. Yeah? Yeah. See? Got it. Cool. You already <laughs> know what's up. <laughs> yeah. I think we all do, man. I had some uh, some fun times down in Daytona, man. I can't I can't even lie, man. I had a good time there when I would visit. We don't go back to those days. No one talk about them at least. Those days. What were you doing in those days? I was forced to go to Black Beach right after I crossed. I was the newbie, so I had no question. Get in the back of the car and ride. I was the only sober one all weekend, so I had to go. I bet you were. <laughs> my question is, my question is, did you end up at the Crystals? Oh, Crystals on Ridgewood. Hey, look at that. I do know, don't I? You know, I've never been to Black Beach, ever. Yeah, yeah, Black College Reunion is it used to be a thing. Man, it's not a thing anymore, I think. No, God, I would never no. go back to that joint. Yeah, and then it's like Black Oktoberfest, <laughs> which is really for like white folks, but we go and crash it, you know, make it black. Uh-huh. Okay. There was there was black folks out there. We went and hung at Bethune while Biketoberfest was going on. Mm. We just post up on that, on that, that, on that one, one street. Half. Half. That's yep. it. That's it. <laughs> 
<laughs> and just sit there and watch craziness happen. And eat and eat food. Yes, yeah, eat that. good food. I think, uh, I've never been to the Crystal in Daytona, but I used to always frequent the uh, Bethune Grill. Come on, Bethune Grill, the wings. Get the you wings, food. man. Oh my God! Like I don't got cocaine in it. Yeah. Yes, yes. Yeah, I'm convinced. I don't even I... eat meat. I'm pescatarian, and it makes me want to sneak off and go back. <clears throat> but I get the shrimp. I get the shrimp dip. Absolutely. So we want to talk about the HBCU experience, man, and you have it from both ends of the spectrum uh, as a graduate as well as an uh, administrator and faculty. So, uh, you know, give us a little bit of your background to start off with. Uh, I'm trying to think what would be the best way. So I graduated from uh, Miami Carroll City Senior High School in Miami, um, and band was a really big part of my life. I played clarinet for probably about 15 years. So Bethune-Cookman University um, at FAMU was out of those two schools if I was going to be like in band. I got accepted to like six schools, I think, um, but it was pretty much down to Cookman um, or FAM. Um, and because I was an undocumented immigrant at the time and didn't have status, it was easier to get into a private historical black college, right, than getting into a public school in terms of like funding. So I got mm -hmm. into all these schools, but it was really hard to pay for them. So mm -hmm. I a really good band scholarship at Cookman and marched into band all four years. And that's kind of how like I ended up going to the Cookman in the first place. Um started doing a lot of student organizing around like LGBTQ issues. Um not sure how much you know about like the histories of the black church and HBCUs, but that's pretty much how most of our schools were founded because of the black church or like had some type of connection to a religious affiliation. Um, what like whether it was the Quakers or it's like the Baptist Church, which was like Morehouse, Morehouse's foundation, or like Bethune Cookman, um, which is Mary McLeod Bethune founded that institution with a dollar and fifty cents. Five little girls in faith in God. We had a very strong like religious background. Um, so obviously the campus was homophobic, um, and I probably was out on campus probably my sophomore year. Like had dated men. Had an ex-boyfriend. He was a cat, but he was so trash. He was trash. I'm sorry. I see your friend who pie in the corner. I had to say that. He was trash. <laughs> oh, cool. He was trash. So trash. You, you probably, you're probably a great guy, I'm sure. <laughs> he, was, he was trash, right? And, like, I was I had always been attracted to women. Was always figuring out, like, what is my sexual orientation? What is my gender identity? How do those things change? And how do they shift over the years? And, like, Bethune-Cookman University is probably the place where I found myself. So I started doing a lot of organizing. A lot of students um, didn't feel supported, um, honestly, on the campus. Uh, there was a lot of like different suicide ideation attempts. Um, folks didn't have places to go. Homelessness, like all of those things were happening. And the school basically didn't want to make a stance or did not want to do anything for LGBTQ folks. I led a lot of that work on campus. I started organizing on my campus and throughout the community in Daytona. Um, later on, I wrote a thesis um, in graduate school about like what are the best practices um, for HBCUs for LGBTQ students and ended up creating like a position for myself um, at the institution in the president's office. So just started doing a lot of organizing around the nation, doing a lot of LGBTQ work, went to North Carolina Central, another HBCU, um, ran their LGBT center for like a couple years, um, then resigned and went and worked for this organization called the National Life Justice Coalition. It's a black LGBTQ civil rights organization that was all HBCU ran. So the executive director, one of my sores, uh, she's hold on, a hold on, 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 hold on. I need to slow you down, ma'am. You are just like you asked you asked a lot of questions, and you, I'm trying to you, this, you, this you, No, 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 no. We want it, but you dropping all this great stuff about you, and you're doing it so fast. I want ooh, the listeners ooh, sorry, to hear, sorry. It, to hear it and appreciate it and respect it. You know what I mean? 
Got you. Okay. I'll go back. So I'll go back to I left Bethune-Cookman, graduated um, with my master's, did a lot of HBCU work on that campus, traveled around the nation doing like best practices and research work. Then it took me to another historical black college, and I ran the LGBT center there for a while. Um, did some work there. I um, was able to make some really dope changes in Durham, North Carolina. Then I left and started working for another organization, serving as like the HBCU program manager that ran all the LGBTQ work in six states on the East Coast. So I say all that to say I've been doing HBCU work from like a student organizer perspective, as someone that was a band member, um, a sorority girl, was really active on my campus, um, and then now have become an administrator and serve like more than just LGBTQ students, but like students who um, who aren't undocumented, um, students who are in international with status and without status, and first-generation college students. So like kind of my matriculation has, has really transformed um, from like an organizer perspective to now like an administrator um, that kind of encourages students to organize on the campus and turn up on administrators when necessary. <laughs> That's absolutely necessary. So, man, I wish, I wish, I so wish you'd have went to the University of Miami. Man. <laughs> that turn up on the administrator's piece, right? That turn up on the administrator's piece. Man, we'd have loved you. Man. Anyway, proceed. That's part of being about a college student, I think. That's <laughs> the best part. Uh, listen, listen, everybody doesn't get that part, though. Everybody doesn't realize that's, that's when you start. This, this, this is your small little fishbowl where you get to test that all out. Mm -hmm. you know, for people that go to school. Your chops. Yeah, for people that go to school, yeah. Yeah, and they think that it's, they think it's all about going to that class and getting that grade. There, there's so much more education for you to get on the college campus. But anyway, that's another podcast. <laughs> right. So let's talk about that dynamic a little bit, because obviously all four of us on the podcast, Carol, Art and uh, BJ, all from a predominantly white institution. And then we have you and there's just stark differences. And I want to know, um, how do you see the state? of the HBCU in its current climate in comparison, or, or so we can compare it to what we kind of experienced at our predominantly white institutions? Oh, I think that this is like always such an interesting conversation that I'm not sure if like that type of question, right? Like warrants a specific answer, right? Like so predominantly white institutions being founded usually by white folks, right? Mm -hmm. Most historical white colleges were also founded by white folks. <laughs> and I don't think people are also clear, right? Like just on like the founding and the principles, but it's it's mainly about like that, like those those brown versus board decisions, those like separation of church and state issues, like those landmark decision issues that actually made HBCUs HBCUs before like you know before desegregation, which allowed people like you on this call and like other black folks to actually go to these institutions. I think there there are many differences, but I also think there are a lot of similarities because folks are black. Right. And like black folks naturally have innately things in common. Um, but I think the difference is PWIs are generally larger schools. Right. HBCUs are naturally smaller, more intimate institutions where you're looking at maybe like 10,000 or less. In my case, Bethune-Cookman was like 5,000 students. And that was like at a really good year when everybody was paid. You know what I'm saying? When retention was at its all time high. Um, I think in this political climate, you're noticing an increase of like black students going to HBCUs because they're wanting to feel connected, right? And connected to a type of lineage and a type of history that they may not feel connected to at a historically black college. I think maybe five or 10 years ago, I would always, I would promote historically black colleges over PWIs um, for different reasons. And I think my sentiments have changed. Um, 
mainly because some predominantly white institutions are leading a lot of the work that I believe HBCUs should be leading, right? Like, I think we have a different responsibility to make sure that our folks' experiences are centered, but mm -hmm. oftentimes HBCUs were actually like breeding the respectability politics and all the bullshit, in my opinion. Um, I, but I, I don't hold like whiteness as a standard. So to me, like a PWI is not the standard. Like, mm -hmm because it's a white institution or inherently white in terms of its founding, I'm more interested in the work that's happening on that campus, right? Mm -hmm. What kind of work is our students leading? But innately, right, like my heart is with historical black colleges because I understand, right, those are the institutions that were for us, that were usually created for us, that we inherited. But are we doing the work that I know that we should be doing? I'm not always sure, right? Like I'm not always sure that that's actually happening. And I'm really thinking about like, diversity and inclusion, right, and multicultural affairs and making sure that things are equitable for, for different uh, historically marginalized communities, I don't see it always happening um, at historically black colleges in the way that I know that it should. That's really interesting that you say that because I was thinking, you know, complete opposite, especially when you point out the socio-political climate that mm -hmm. we're in. And then I look at the things and I think about the HBCU experience from what I've heard from those that have attended. You know, mm -hmm. they always talk about the 360 degree, you know, protection and push and that, um, uh, just a, a certain level of growth and development that they receive. Mm -hmm. um, so to hear you speak about, you know, the HBCUs not necessarily leading the charge, it sounds like, in certain aspects versus a predominantly white institution that probably is subscribing more to that diversity and inclusion because they have to. Um, it, it, it just kind of throws me off a little bit. So um, where do you see yourself in all of that? Because I know you're doing a lot of that activism in your current position, and you have done a lot of that in the past. I think it's like you just asked me to, I feel like you made a comment that I would need to figure out how to respond to. Um, but to directly answer your question, um, I see myself as leading that work um, and holding folks accountable. So oftentimes on the campus I work at or other campuses, it's like, well, Trinise, you know, you're bringing your gay agenda to our school. And I'm like, no, you actually have had LGBTQ students on your campus and you haven't properly been serving them, right? You've had first generation college students on your campus and we haven't adequately been serving them. We've had students with disabilities on your campus, right? And the list goes on because marginalized identities like are not happening in a monolith in the same way that black people are not a monolith. There's no one black person that is the same, right? And our identities and our experiences is what shapes us, right? And like shapes how we walk and navigate through the world. And I think it's a HBCU's responsibility, especially for black and brown folks, to make sure that people's experiences are centered, right? And that we're providing like a quality accessible, like education to folks inside and outside of the classroom. Um, and I always say that to HBCUs because I think we have a particular responsibility when it comes to black students specifically. Like specifically, it is our role and responsibility to make sure that students have the, the care that they need, that students feel affirmed, that they feel supported, that they have a curriculum that's truly inclusive and that's really gonna prepare them, right, for the world when they graduate and not gonna like reinforce like more like patriarchal misogynistic little assholes running around the town, which is what we see on television and in the White House, right, and in different political administrations. And they're not all white folks. Some of those are, are people too, right? And it's because folks, haven't been educated and are not clear about people's identities and about people's lived experiences. So I think I see my role is like leading that work on campuses uh, to really transform culture. To me, I do like cultural competency trainings. Like I've done so many trainings. I done trained so many people 
Um, and to me, trainings are like not pointless, right? Because I think that's, that's the first step, right? Like saying that I would like to go to a training and I am willing to learn this specific thing. Um, but it's about transforming and changing the culture. Like we have to shift culture. And to me, HBCUs um, play a much larger role. Um, and I want to be careful about my words because HBCUs and the black church are the oldest institutions that black people have had post the transatlantic slave trade, mm-hmm. right? Like we've had the black church and we've had historically black colleges and historically black colleges came as a result of the black church, right? So I just think that the responsibility is different. Now, to me, that doesn't mean that PWIs are not as responsible because mm-hmm. folks that integrated PWIs, um, I think folks are many reason integrated PWIs. I think some of it, some of it was, um, how do I say this? A lot of respect, a lot of respectability. Like we want our kids to go to a better school, right? Mm-hmm. Than like, and not go to a black school. And the some of it was like, it had nothing to do with that. It had to do with what was one of the, where could I get a great education that had a great atmosphere that would get me like what I wanted to do post-graduation, right? Like some people don't go to schools based on race or based on lineage or legacy, especially black folks who are like first gen. Mm-hmm. Like most of us are either first gen. Some of our parents went to school, but they weren't like big top tier school. For y'all, y'all went to UM, right? Like one of the best schools in the country that everyone knows about. Like whether it's medicine, whether it's biology, whether it's education, whether it's like the football team or even the band, like University of Miami is like a top tier school. Damn. I would say I love how she put three things before the football team. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, just to me the football. No, 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 no. Team. I don't have any. I don't have any. He reacted to the band just like me. <laughs> she mentioned the band. I was just like, oh my gosh, really? The band? Right. Oh, in terms of musicianship, yeah. There's a, the symphonic band and the orchestra at University of Miami is one of the best in the country. Yeah. In terms of musicianship, not showmanship. So but somebody's, I, val- somebody's, val- somebody's validating their whole claim to be the band of the hour. We, 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 oh, we, no, no, no. I ain't never going to say that. <laughs> but I'm talking about musicality, right? And like technicality, they have a great program and they got some really good musicians. Um, and I, I love the University of Miami because I grew up, right, with BJ. <laughs> so that's like, that's literally all I seen was, you know, the University of Miami going on tours of the institution and learning about the school and like learning about the culture of like the football and what that has done for our whole city, right? UM has like put our city on and brought a sense of pride. So I think that there are many benefits, right, of PWI culture um, but what PWIs have to do is not just allow Black folks to enter their school and to check boxes, which is what a lot of PWIs do. But when they integrated those schools, I don't always think that they really wanted us at those schools. When these EEOs came about and these affirmative action laws came about and like for equitable resources, it was checking a box to say that we're doing a thing. But when I have like friends um, who go to these institutions and the way that they're having to fight in their Black student unions feels very much like the experience at an HBCU, you know? Because it's like oh, they, absolutely. they wanted you at their institution, but they didn't provide the resources that you needed in order to thrive. So it's really a higher ed problem, but to me, HBCUs have a particular responsibility um, and PWI should, but we know they won't. I don't, I don't think, I have not seen a school that has done it well that has like literally created equitable resources for their marginalized populations in a way that their students did not have to turn up. Rutgers is doing exceedingly well. They're doing much better um, than they were, but a lot of people had to do a lot of work on that campus in order to get it done. I don't know if that answers your question, but I hope it does. 
Yeah, you gave us a whole lot. <laughs> uh, Coach K, you look like you wanted to jump in, man, a few times. Uh, all, all I was going to say was that, you know, she hit the nail on the head with the whole diversity piece. And then yeah. she, even when you talk about multicultural student affairs, right? So three out of the four of us on here were heavily involved with multicultural student affairs. We're still kind of involved with multicultural student affairs and what they have going on, the resources that have been taken away from them, resources mm-hmm. given to them, who they report to. We're still heavily involved in that fight because it takes alumni to get involved because our students that are currently at our PWI don't realize what that resource is and what it does for them. But again, you hit the nail on the head when you said about them really wanting us there. It was just to check a box. And it is just that basic surface level of diversity. Of Well, we're diverse. Look at, we've got 13% uh, black population, right? We've had 13% black population for as long as I can remember, right? And, I, and my thing is, okay, take out, take out all the athletes. What do we have left? Take out the folks that make us a gang of money. What do we have left? Nobody ever, wanted, nobody ever wanted to answer that question, mm-hmm. right? So it was very interesting to me, though, that you work at Multicultural Student Affairs on a historically black college campus because I'm really interested to see what that means mm-hmm. at HBCU and versus a PWI. That's what it is, exactly. Absolutely. I think that's a really good question. And I think you also made really good points. Um, and I don't want to say this is the argument because I think that kind of sets a different like tone. Um, but like usually my argument is because folks don't understand like why do we need diversity and inclusion? Why do we need multicultural affairs at an HBCU? Uh, because HBCUs don't only serve African-American students. Right? Like that may be the, the precipice and the premise that people think. Because, of course, they're situated in America. Usually HBCUs have some connection to the South. They're usually on the East Coast. Like, there's, like, a whole, like, regional and, like, kind of blueprint explanation for, like, how and where HBCUs are located. But we serve – I don't even know how to, how to explain to you the, the type of students that we serve and the, and the diversity of students that we serve. Because sometimes, it, to me, it seems insulting and redundant for me to explain to Black people about our diversity. Right, like there's no like set of black people that is the same. Um, and this is how I introduce the conversation through a multicultural standpoint because I serve many different types of students. The institution is 60% black, right? 13% of those students are international students. Those international students can identify as any particular thing. So some of those students are black. Um, most of them are from Saudi Arabia, Qatar, um, Jamaica. Um, and I think Nigeria, I think those are my top four countries out of the 502 international students that I have. When you just look at that number, right? The way that they, they have penetrated the campus, we probably have one of the most culturally like sensitive or diverse HBCUs that I've seen in terms of diversity. So the diversity and inclusion piece is not just about race, it's about the different complexities, right? And the different types of folks that are that we serve. I also work at a post um, post-commuter, post what is it called, post-traditional campus. So we have non-commuter students. So traditionally age, college students are age 18. My students start at age 24. Now you have a small percentage of young folks, right? But a lot of these students are older students who are like young age adults up into 60s or 70s. We serve all kinds of students. So all my students are just not your young, traditional age type of student. 
um, a lot of our students, uh, we have a huge undocumented population, which has become like sensationalized in the media over the last couple of years because people are learning about undocumented people as if they have not been in the country for decades. Um, but now HBCUs um, have a decision to make, right? Like, are we going to make our institutions sanctuaries for these for these folks or are we going to shut them out in ways that black people know that should not happen right because black people have always been historically marginalized in very particular ways that other groups have not regardless of if we're talking about latinx folks or if we're talking about asian folks the way that black people have been marginalized in very particular systemic ways other races um, might have commonalities and similarities, but not in a way that Black people have been situated on a spectrum. So when I do diversity and inclusion work, um, it's really about helping students understand um, where they are in their identity, but moving them out of identity into action um, and acknowledging, right, like the different identities that they hold. So the three pillars that the center does work with are LGBTQ students, uh, first-generation college students, and the way I've defined first-generation as uh, first-generation college students who, like, this is the first, they're the first generation in their family, and then, like, first-generation immigrant folks, right? So, like, students who were born in America, but their parents were born in another country, because that brings a, a completely different implication, right, than just an, an American student who doesn't have that experience, and then, of course, LGBTQ folks. So yeah, those are like the three populations that I focus on specifically, but that DNI multicultural affairs comes in a lot with like my international population, a whole lot. And then DC being a huge metropolitan area where our school is, is actually surrounded by like hella embassies. Like I think the embassy of Sudan is down the street, Qatar is across the street, like Russia is around the corner. Like we're in the, we're like in the middle, like it's a metropolis of just international embassies. So we're actually just situated like in a very interesting place where we attract a lot of diverse type of folks. And those folks aren't just white folks. They're like folks of all different races and creeds. So that's like the approach to the work. And then your approach. So given the diversity that we see at, that you're seeing at the HBCUs, yeah. um, it's not typically expected. Do you see those folks having a harder time transitioning um, versus, you know, how we kind of kind of have to try to fit in and work extra hard at the PWIs to transition into that environment and acclimate ourselves? I don't want to like position them against each other. I think that, I think that when a, a black student or a brown student, um, a non-white student is entering a PWI, um, depending on where they were raised, right? Like how they were socialized, they're gonna have a particular type of experience. If they were raised predominantly around black folks, it's gonna be an interesting experience because it ain't gonna be that many when you get there, right? So that's just gonna be one thing. I think there are many different dynamics that come into play when we're talking about like race, gender, and class, right? Like and people's like understanding of how they've been socialized at a PWI versus why black students feel comfortable in an HBCU because it feels like home, right? Um, but it might feel like home for people that are American or Americanized. Now, when folks are coming from another country, um, in a country like America, especially in this political climate, I think that experience altogether is going to kind of be traumatizing. Some of my students are traumatized by the experience they have in America. And that depends on what country they're from. But we live in a very, like, anti-Muslim country now, right? Like, we Can live in a... Can you give us an example of that, please? Yeah. That, that's the word. I want a, a couple of examples. A couple of things you hit on. I want to hit a couple of examples because yeah. let everybody understand exactly what that means and what that looks like. So xenophobia, right? We've seen... We've had... We currently have a person in the White House right now 
who's not my president, uh, we call him 45, I'm pretty sure y'all call him the same thing, who has been probably one of the most blatant racist um, persons in power we've ever seen in this country in a way that's visible. The rest of these, I can't say that word because we're on a podcast, but the rest of these people, um, <laughs> right? Like the rest of them have been the same, I'm sure. They just haven't done it in a blatant way that shows us who they are, right? So we live in a country that has, has a, uh, tried to ban TPS, temporary protected status, for Haitian folks, right? For Sudanese folks, for, for folks that are from El Salvador and Honduras that have made very blatant like remarks about uh, Muslim folks, like creating a travel ban, like all of these things. And like all of those things are not happening in a silo. They all impact students and they all impact higher ed. So a lot of my students who are international students, depending on the country they're from, some of them are traumatized because their introduction to America in this current political climate hasn't been a good hasn't been a good experience for them based on their race right or based on the country that they're from so it's i think it really just differs on the type of students but most of my black students are from jamaica um who go to udc um and i think that this country is <laughs> they're like i don't know where i'm at i don't know what's going on um when we're talking about like lgbtq issues it depends on the student right because of the culture or the what people think and understand the culture of jamaica to be um is a homophobic place which is not true for all people but that's like the popular understanding that jamaicans are homophobic right um a lot of my um saudi arabian students they don't engage at all they don't come to events they pretty much have their own like communities they live in the same places in the same apartment buildings they only talk to each other um they're all in the school of business or the school of engineering um and they i don't want to say they fall into the stereotypes but i think for safety right and to feel comfortable and to preserve their culture they band together so i, I can't really i hope that's helpful bj like give you examples of like depending on where people are from um, especially if their country is one of the countries where this guy or the president has said like really disgusting xenophobic remarks. Um, and so outside of you and, yeah. the current, and the things you've done right there, yeah. are there any other specifics that UDC has done as a system or as a community to help mm -hmm. support or help outside of establishing the center you're doing right now? Yeah, so I don't want to say outside of, because I can't really speak to that. I can only speak to the work that I've been leading since I got there this year. But the, what my understanding of the international student experience is that there have been organizations, which I get the same feeling as how you all have come to know each other, that have led work on campuses. And those organizations at UDC have been the African Student Association, um, it's been the International Student Association and the Caribbean Student Association. And they have created this sense of community within each other right? For support, for resources. I'm talking about when students were getting here off the plane, they were the ones picking the students up, not officials. When people need to host dinners, they were the one hosting the dinners at their homes, making sure that people got fed. Um, when people need like things like condoms and tampons and all kinds of things, like they were, they was pretty much running at work themselves. And some of the students were struggling, but some students saw it as their responsibility, you know? And to me, that's not an HBCU or PWI thing. I think that's like a, that's like a community thing, right? It's like a black. It, 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 it's all across the board. So yeah. all those organizations that you just named on the HBCU, have we had COESO, mm -hmm. Council of International Student Organizations. We had, um, wow. uh, we had uh, CSA, CSA Student Association. ASU, which had a bunch of people under that. We had ASU, African Student Union. Um, so all of those same organizations, we have some faction of it um, at our PWI. And you're mm -hmm. absolutely right. Um, yeah. We had incoming students. It was people from those organizations that hosted them. 
when we had just American or Americanized students, black students, it was us that hosted them and took them around and did things for them. So uh, it's very much um, the same. Yeah. There's one, there's one difference that I want to start talking about and I want to open up a little bit, right? So when you look at that transition, so take yourself, right? Who, first question, hold on. Were you born in the States or were you born in Jamaica? No, I was born in the United Kingdom. My family's born in the UK. Oh, Ghana, you messed me up, man. I was trying to be the Biden to your Obama in 2026, but we can't even. <laughs> I haven't voted. Yeah, man. Okay, anyway, back to what I was saying. So what is that preparation for that world? So for you, you went to Carroll City, right? Let's, mm-hmm. let's, let's go ahead and call that what it is. It's a black, it's a black high school. The best right? one in Miami-Dade County. <laughs> all, right, all, right, all right, Chief, let's keep it moving. Um, <laughs> what I did there. Um, all right, so you went to Carroll City. Then you went to several HBCUs, right? Mm-hmm. So then when you finally transitioned, if you were not working in the HBCU field at this point, you would be out in the predominantly white uh, society, right? Which I would think, maybe not for you, but for a lot of our HBCU graduates, I think there is a shock factor now when you get out into that real world that Mm -hmm. we probably started experiencing at our PWI already because it was all around us. We already knew that we weren't really wanted there. We were already um, the victims of a lack of diverse thinking, a lack of uh, being open to other cultures, other races. So do you think that that's a a thing that actually exists as far as that preparation for what's going to happen once you get away from your historically black college and university? I think... It's a 50-50 question. I think you made a statement and asked a question. I think that you made an assumption, right, that I had only been in Black spaces. Um, I think I was socialized in predominantly Black spaces, right? Like, so I grew up in a very Black area in Carroll City with Black people, with island Caribbean, Jamaicans and Haitians and Bahamians and all of these different types of people and Latinx folks. And then I also, like, interned at an uh, at a PWI. Stetson University has the oldest law school in the state of Florida. I worked there for two years while I was in grad school. So I, I, I promise you, I, I promise, I promise you, I said, I promise you, I said, probably not you. Because right. I but no, I'm, I'm, I'm going somewhere. If you let me finish, okay. I'm somewhere. I will right. let you finish. There were other, there were other students um, who, like me, would go to UCF and get like different experiences. So I say this because usually wherever there's an HBCU nearby, there's a PWI. Right. And a lot of times there's some type of partnership happening. There's some curriculum sharing Um, here in Washington, D.C. We have a program where if you're taking a course in Washington, D.C. at like on our campus, you can take it anywhere. So you go to Howard, you go to Trinity, you go to American, you go to Georgetown. So a lot of those programs exist where a lot of HBCUs are. where you have the opportunity to go to a nearby PWI. So I think for most folks. Right. I think there's a lot of truth to what you're saying, that they've been socialized predominantly by black people. Right. So their use to a different type of like uh, atmosphere. They're used to a different type of like environment, but I don't ever like to make assumptions like that, like about what people are comfortable with, how they've been cultured or socialized. Cause I think sometimes we're wrong about how like the human behavior may work. What I think is that um, I completely agree hundred percent with your statement about like you all as black folks 
integrating this PWI essentially and having a really interesting experience with white folks, which really showed you the real world <laughs> in a very different way than folks who had to go to an HBCU and like matriculate through that process. I think you're absolutely right. But I think that a lot of HBCU students like me, I would go, I went to the PWI for a different experience because I just wanted to see what it was like. Plus, I had more resources, right? So I was going to go to the PWI, see who had more resources, see who had more access, and get what I needed from that school. I think a lot of HBCUs are doing that, um, or trying to figure, or a lot of HBCU undergrad students will go to, like, a PWI for a master's program, right? And then that's how they will also get introduced to a lot of different work. But folks are working in college, right? So they work and they living in the real world. You just don't go to an HBCU and then like life is just black, right? Like, because you still have to navigate the real world. Daytona Beach, y'all been, it's a very white place. I never lived in a place like that in my entire life. And I had never encountered racism in the ways that I encountered it being in Daytona Beach for those seven years. Cause I stayed after grad school. So yeah, like I just think it's it's a matter of like regionally where you place, right? Like are people working? Do they have internships? Um, depending on like what school they're in, like a, a part of the grad school, the environmental science program, it could be, it was all white, it's all white professors. Mm-hmm. So people that were going through that program, right? Like didn't really engage in the same way that I engaged because my like department head was a black Jamaican woman and she ran the psychology department. You know what I'm saying? I just think it, it just depends on the school. It depends on who the board members are. It depends on who's picking that curriculum. Cause believe if you got some Republican board members, right. And some white board members, your curriculum going to look a little different. You're not going to have a black studies program. You're not going to have a women and gender studies program. Like it just is different implications versus at PWIs. I think there's a lot of advantages because it's, it's not just black folks at the table. Um, it's all kinds of folks at the table. And when there is black folks at the table, it's a particular type of black folk, right? That wants yeah. to create a different type of environment for students like you all who graduated from that institution. So I hope that makes sense. It's like, I, no. I agree. I think there's a lot of truth to what you're saying, but I also don't want to make assumptions about people's experience and like the way they, you know what I'm saying? They navigate. Right. So, um, yeah, definitely wasn't making an assumption, but sometimes mm-hmm. uh, we're going to ask some questions for the listeners because yeah, have people that are getting exposed to some stuff for the first time. And gotcha. you know what I mean? I want to make sure that people get to hear this from somebody that's in it. Not only did you go to school in it, you teach in it. So, and you know what I yeah. mean? You're, you're an administrator in it. So I want them to hear that and, and be able to take that back and do something with it because the diversity piece, we, we've broken it down to being about race and sex but the diversity piece actually starts in how you think yeah it's right? just, yeah every, it's 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 way deeper than the the three race gender and class when we talk about intersectionality right. and we talk about interlocking oppression right and the different systemic oppressions that shape the way we experience violence in our and in, in the way we experience harm as marginalized people it's like beyond right it's like beyond me being a black woman or me being a black queer woman. It's about all of these identities and how I experience and have to navigate the world. And as black folks, there's a host of different like identities that we hold and a host of different experiences with brown folks, like the same thing. But when we're, t- I think it's a different thing to say historically marginalized, right? We're talking about specific people who generally are not white. Right? Like historically marginalized folks ain't white folks. They're folks who live at the margins and they're folks who are usually rendered invisible. Those are the those are the experiences that I like to center, that I believe are the only way that like black folks particularly are gonna get free. Right? Like if we're not centering the experiences of the most marginalized folks, the rest of us are not gonna get free. 
And that's like the approach that I use in my work. And that approach is from like black feminism, black queer feminism to be exact. But it's like a model that we use and a lens that we use to navigate through the world because um, we're fighting for liberation for all black folks. Hey Brett, we need to get um, we need to get uh, women take over on the thirteenth floor. We need to get Trinice and angry black female on here at the same time. Um, and I don't even I don't even need to be on that one. I'm just gonna. I was gonna say I don't think any of us. They would definitely just you know sit here and throw ideas and stuff back and forth, man. I think the insight and perspective that you provided for us here on this on the show has been amazing. Um, and well, to, to have the ABF come and sit beside you, I think that'd be definitely something that we work on to make happen. And then if you're really feeling froggy, then the third person you know, <laughs> that. that might throw a two, just a little bit too much firecracker on that. I don't know how we're going to work that out, man. We're going to have to discuss we that. Gotta, um, we got to check our fire and casualty uh, insurance. <laughs> Easy, easy. Hey, Trenice, um, I definitely want to thank you for coming and sharing with us on the uh, 13th floor, man. Um, I think yeah, Trenice, we're going to need to have you back. Oh, I, that, that, it's, it's coming. It's coming. That was going to be That's why I said when, when we think about ideas, like, we got to get her on. Like, and then I know it took a while to make it happen, but we definitely need to get her back. No, yeah, man, it was definitely uh, definitely well worth it. Definitely well worth it. Um, and I must say, because I can say before you wrap up, because I've seen this young woman grow for the, what, 13 years now? 13, 14 years now? Fresh throw the arms in there. <laughs> so what you're hearing now and see her life just transform. She has taken it upon herself to make sure that she educates herself. And I'm not talking about just book knowledge, just navigating the world and navigating life to make sure that everything you heard today is genuine from the heart and just experiences that shaped um her opinions and her approach to life. So I'm so proud of her and everything she's doing. Like when it, when she has an opening in a couple of months, I'm trying my best to be there, take the family there. And these, even though it's gonna be cold, it's gonna be the one time I probably break my, I'm not coming north in the cold weather to come support you. Um, but we'll try our best to be in DC for your opening of the center, um, get up there and make sure to support you too. Thank you. Y'all can all y'all all welcome. It's gonna be lit. I'm gonna have a party. Drop, after. drop the information real quick. When is it? Tell I will, so we're doing it uh February 13th and 14th here in DC after I don't know if y'all know about HBCU culture, but like after convocation, like there's it's convocation is like the biggest thing. It's where all the dignitaries, board members, all the alum, whole bunch of black folks come together um mm -hmm. to hear like this address. And it just so happens that it's our Founders Day that same day and Valentine's Day. So I'm doing a grand opening for the center, a reception. And um, I turned 30 about 32 days later. So I'll be bringing in like my 30th uh, birthday celebration because my family and friends going to be here. It's going to be lit. I'm having a party. So there it is. The 13th floor is going to be present. I'm already up here in the area. So all you need to do is shoot me the flyer and I'm, I'm going to get it. Okay, great. Brett, <laughs> uh, can you, well, Trinice, uh, can you tell us how to, um, our followers can follow you on any kind yes. of social media or anything else? Sure. So I don't do Twitter anymore. I've been in Twitter jail too many times. I quit. Um, I wonder why. <laughs> <laughs> so on Instagram, it's Aozuri, A-Y-O underscore Z-U-R-I. And then on Facebook, it's T-J-A-Y, um, Aozuri. So T-J Aozuri on Facebook, Aozuri on IG. Um, Y'all can get my email if you want it. Um, you can hit my webpage at www.udc.edu backslash CDIMA. Um, and there's some links and some work that we're doing there as well. 
Right. Can we make sure to put them in the uh, down below or down here so we can have them in here for YouTube and our podcast? I'd like to keep the podcast at least PG 13, man. I don't know what you're talking about. This one down here, stuff <laughs> down below. I, my screen is on the bottom. So under me would be the bar on the YouTube. You know, I'm a YouTube guy. So. We, get that, we get that explicit. Uh, <laughs> rating every week anyway, so whatever. I know we definitely needed it for this one. Nah, man, it's easy. Phase on, man. I'm sticking with you, man. As we go ahead and wrap this thing, man, I need the corner. Wow, I, well, it's very few times where I'm just speechless and I'm in learning mode. And I, I think I, I today was a good one. I was just listening and learning and, and taking it all in. So, uh, I appreciate that and thank you. Uh, and I hope our listeners do the same and just enjoy uh, today's. Uh, I would say lesson because it was more in the podcast. It was a lesson. There was some knowledge being dropped. So uh, thank you for that. Uh, as far as my corner today, I was thinking about this earlier and it kind of maybe we'll bounce to this now. But uh, right now, if you are listening to this, if you are waking up or going to sleep, wherever it may be, you have to just take your for what it is and just enjoy the moment you're in. Um, People tend to worry a lot about what's going on, what they can and can't do. Um, you know, I'm not saying you can't plan life, you can't plan financial things, but you also got to be able to take a second out to just enjoy what you have in front of you. And people around you who have much less, and if you're always complaining about what you, what you don't have, what you want, you never have time to enjoy what you have. And that's when people forget about the important things. Yeah, man, I'm going to piggyback on that while we had this uh, this opportunity for personal privilege, preference, I'm sorry. I got to definitely give a, a, a shout out to Chris, my lady. She passed her first set of boards um, for dental school. Yeah. Do the thing, Chris. Very, very stressful time, man, but she powered through it, man. Saw it through to the other side, so she's like halfway there. She got another set, but it goes right along with what you're saying, man, taking the opportunity to enjoy this. Carol knows it almost as good as I do, if not better, that she's immediately like right back on the grind mode and I'm trying to get her to understand. You got to take that little bit of time, not too much, but just a little bit of time to enjoy the moment, kind of uh, recuperate because it takes a lot out of her, but definitely uh, congratulations goes out to you. Coach K, we're about to get up out of here, man. I need you, you to take us home. All these people and all this deep stuff that they just dropped. I'm supposed to follow that, man. Man, listen, to. I'm a... I'm, I'm gonna give this. I'm gonna give this baton to Trinice to close us out because she just came on here and just dropped so much stuff, rapid fire like a machine gun. So I'm gonna let her close it out slow and drop something. What she just wants to let the people know, man. And the floor is yours, ma'am. Wow! Thanks y'all for having me. This was really like dope, and I'm glad I got to spend my night with y'all um, and share information. I think that it's really important that folks know. Um, that the political climate that we live in and the world that we live in um, is really not about what school you go to. Like at this point, um, I will hope that folks like respect and value the work that HBCUs have done and led in our communities. Because um, whether you went to them or not, if you're a black person that's living in America, you've been impacted, right? By HBCU culture, um, by the organizations that have been birthed at these institutions, um, by the black church, um, by political movements and civil rights in some way. Um, so I'm really calling for folks to be accountable right? And like find their place to make sure that they're transforming the lives of young people around the world, but specifically black folks. 
<laughs> Easy. That's all we got, ladies and gentlemen. Remember, you can get this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud. You can catch the videos on YouTube and Vimeo. And follow us at 13th Floor, please. Mm-hmm. All your social media handle, handles, uh, Instagram, Facebook, all of that. So we done here, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you all for listening on the 13th floor where the furniture isn't always the best. But the views are amazing. The 13th floor. floor. Thank you, sir. That was amazing. Uh, definitely, definitely. The 13th floor. floor.